0: Welcome to Journey Church Tucson Sermon Podcast. We are an evangelical free church seeking to honor God by making disciples that learn about, love like, and live like Jesus. Well, good morning. Uh, And as, as we get started, let me just echo what Sarah said in introducing that last song by reminding you that we will be gathering both on Christmas Eve and on Christmas uh, so we will be gathering here both at 10 a.m. on December 25th and at 6 p.m. on Christmas Eve. And the reason why we're doing this is I know a lot of churches, they tend to want to shift uh, when when a service falls on a particular day, uh, which generally is important to us as families. There There's a pressure to shift from meeting on that day to meeting one day prior or one day after, and we, uh, we have decided that we should gather on Christmas, that we're going to do that first because we believe that there's a strong precedent in Scripture that more than celebrating holidays, uh, but gathering together as a body to mutually encourage one another uh, is really important and that the Scriptures seem to place a weight on that. As well, uh, we believe that there's a fittingness, as Sarah talked about, to celebrating the resurrection and the incarnation together. The primary discipling ministry of any church is its Sunday morning gathering where we get together to hear the word preached, to sing the word to each other, to pray the word as uh, our elder Ken just did. Uh, We gather for all of those things, for the mutual encouraging and uh, and for our discipling relationship with Jesus. And so we want to do that again and doing that focusing on both the resurrection and the incarnation because there's a providential fittingness of celebrating them together. Uh, without the resurrection, the incarnation is incomprehensible. Why would God have become a man if he was certainly just to die and then remain in the grave? But on the flip side is also true that without the incarnation, the resurrection is impossible. And so we think that there's a fittingness to gathering both on December 24th at 6 p.m., Uh, to celebrate Christmas together on Christmas Eve, but also to gather on the Lord's Day, December 25th, uh, which is Christmas at 10 a.m. to remind ourselves of the resurrection and not just the incarnation on that morning. And by the way, on Christmas, we will be wrapping up our sermon series through the Sermon on the Mount, which we have been in for six months now. So next week, that's what we're going to be doing. This week, we are in, and this is just for Tom, the penultimate passage. That word was just for Tom. The penultimate passage of the Sermon on the Mount. So if you have your Bibles, and I hope that you do, would you open them to Matthew chapter 7, verses 21 through 23? And by the way, if uh, you are unfamiliar with the Bible, that's okay. Uh, Matthew is the first book in the New Testament. You open up to the Table of Contents. It'll guide you to a particular page number that Matthew begins on, and then once you get there, you're looking for chapter 7. Unlike a modern book, there's no page breaks when you hit the chapters, so you'll look for a big number 7 set into the text on the page, and then the uh, what looks like bolded footnotes are the verse numbers. So you're looking for chapter 7, verses 21 through 23. And while you guys are headed there this morning, uh, let me put this passage in some context uh, so that we can properly understand it. Jesus, in this passage, is preaching, th- he is preaching what we now call the Sermon on the Mount. And the Sermon on the Mount has four major movements that are guided by four major themes. He has, finished the thir- he has finished all three and is in about halfway through the fourth movement of the Sermon on the Mount. And this movement is characterized by discipling wisdom or discipleship wisdom, general truths that we need to understand in order to grow as disciples of Jesus Christ. And the central truth that he is talking about from verses 13 to 29 is that one's life, its meaning and its destiny, is ultimately determined by a binary system and a totalizing choice. A binary system and a totalizing choice. That means binary, you only have two options, and totalizing, meaning whatever option you go with, it will encompass all of your life. It will not leave anything out. And both of these are something that make our culture rather uncomfortable. And a superficial way to think about it would be to say that they make our culture uncomfortable because we don't like binaries and we don't like totalizing choices. But that's not actually the whole picture. In fact, our culture is usually fine with binary choices and totali- or binary and totalizing choices. The problem is the actual choices that are set before us. You see, our culture is generally incoherent when it thinks about uh, having to choose between one or two options and having to give your life all to one option. And this is because of uh, what has taken place in our culture in terms of the evolution of an intellectual framework, the way we think about things, the way we view the world. And if I, if I can descend into some history, uh, let me tell you that for the vast majority of what we would call Western culture, there's been a movement that has had basically three names. Some people have called it mo- modernity, some people have called it modernism, other people have called it the enlightenment, but that is a historical time period that saw great intellectual, scientific, and technological progress. And the world was revolutionized and changed because of that progress, And in our hubris as Western individuals, we thought that ultimately that progress continuing would lead us to a utopia. Now, there's two ways to think about the phrase utopia. I'll talk about them both in a second. But the first way is you, E-U, topia or topos, which comes from the Greek, EU would be good and topos is place. So it would lead us, technological, intellectual, scientific progress would lead us to a good place or a perfect place where all of the problems of the world would be done away with and we would live in complete harmony. Now the problem with that is at the apex or the peak of the enlightenment or modernism, Two world wars broke out and ravaged most of the globe. Hundreds of thousands, millions of people died. The technology, the progress, the science that was supposed to bring us to utopia had failed us. And so people began to be cynical and skeptical and they dropped the e off of the front of utopia because in Greek if you put a u before a word you negate it it means negative or no so utopia eu topa topia means good place utopia's in u topos means no place and so people started to believe that the pursuit of progress led not to a good place but nowhere that it was ultimately meaningless. And cynically, they looked for something to blame for the wars that we had encountered. And they determined, and by they I mean the philosophers and the public intellectuals, which would be like the artists and the authors of the day, determined that the thing that we should blame is the pursuit of objective truth. The belief that truth is not determined by what I believe, but is determined by the way the world is, the way it was created to be. And so they said, well, the reason why wars broke out is because there are people in different countries from different cultures who have counter uh, views of how the world is and how we are to live, and these cultures couldn't live together, so they ended up in conflict and clashing, and death and destruction was the result. And so, philosophers known, the, the philosophers that came after modernism, uh, which is postmodernism, post meaning after modernism, they were cynical about the pursuit of objective truth, and they said, what we need is not a belief in objective truth, but a belief in subjective truth. That I, each one of us as I, uh, learns and believes what is true for them, and you cannot impress your truth upon me because it might be true for you, but it's not true for me, and likewise, I cannot put my truth on you because it is only for me and not for you. One of the primary philosophers of this age was Friedrich Nietzsche, and he believed that all truth claims that created a binary system and a totalizing choice fundamentally were grabs at power, They were about me trying to obtain power so that I can have power over everybody else. And so he rejected that, and he said, no, this is why we need subjectivity. This is why we need subjective truth. But the problem is, Nietzsche's claims themselves are a binary and totalizing truth. That all truth is subjective is totalizing. That you have only two options, objective and subjective, is binary. And so the postmodern system ended up breaking down because it itself was inconsistent and incoherent. And so, our culture, the reason why we struggle with binary and totalizing truths, is because we re imported the zombie of modernism back into postmodernism, and now we have a mix of subjective and objective, and we have a difficult time discerning between the two. And so, this is why you can say things. Uh, This is why you can have a conversation with somebody who presents a very postmodern worldview, a worldview that runs contrary to the way things were created to be, and when you make comments about the Christian faith and the binary choice between following Jesus or not following Jesus, or the totalizing truth of the the way the world is and therefore how that affects things like our ethics and our beliefs about how the world ought to function— They would say, no, that's wrong, don't put your truth upon me, that's fine for you, but it's not fine for me. And then moments later, they might tell you that what you say about, say, sexual ethics puts you on the wrong side of history. On the wrong side of history, by the way, is a binary and totalizing truth. It assumes that there's a right and a wrong side to history, binary, and it assumes that I, looking at history, can objectively determine where that history is going And I can say with clarity and confidence that I stand on its right side. It's totalizing. And so, one of the things that, one of the reasons why I wanted to point that out is because our culture has a problem with this. It has a tension in it, and we should take that tension to be a sign of something good. Because what that tension fundamentally means is that no matter how far you are from God, Something that God has put in the core of who you are screams from the inside out that there is truth, goodness, and beauty, and those are realities about the way the world is because of the way they were created, and you can only deny them so long. And I point all of that out because right in this passage, what we have been talking about as we have preached through the Sermon on the Mount is we have fundamentally said that there came into the world... A man sent from God who was true, who was good, and whose character and life and ministry was beautiful. And he determined to tell us what it looked like to live a true, good, and beautiful life. And at the close of his sermon, he presented two options. The only two options. And whichever one you pick will determine every aspect of your life. And so here in this passage, at the close of the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus gives us the binary options. And he asks us which we will choose, the narrow and rugged path to life or the broad and easy path to destruction. One commentator speaking about this passage in the Sermon on the Mount said this, the Sermon on the Mount has been all about ethical obligation to live a superior righteousness, this involves the thought life uh, as key to relationships in the new community. It involves the priority of God in every aspect of our religious life. As well, it requires uh, or our relationship to material possessions and in our social relationships inside and outside of the community. And then getting to this passage, he says, now, this, now is the time of decision. And Jesus wants us to realize the seriousness of the choice. The path to God is narrow and hazardous, but it is the only path to take. And because of the the way that Jesus presents the binary and the totalizing truth of this passage, I wonder if it might uh, offend or strike some of us in particular ways because in the previous two passages dealing with this, he has contrasted those inside and outside of the church, inside and outside of the community. But in today's text, he actually contrasts those who are within the community, those who are seeking the actual path of discipleship, of following and obeying Jesus Christ, and those who are merely adopting the superficialities of discipleship. And so because of that, there may be a challenge for some of us in here in this text. And so I want to begin by once again going before the Lord in prayer to reorient our hearts so that we might hear this passage truly for us. So would you bow with me in prayer, and then we will unpack Matthew seven twenty-one through 23. Father in heaven, may the meditations of each of our hearts and the words of my mouth be honoring in your sight. Lord, I pray that you take this word and you use it in the life of the discipleship of each of your people gathered here. As we have already sung, we thank you, Christ, that you are our hope. May your identity and power be be clearly communicated this morning. And Father, if there is any in here who has yet to trust your Son for salvation, would you call them to do so through the ministry of your word and spirit in this gathering, be it the preached word or the sung word that we will uh, respond with. Lord, we offer each of these things to you in the name of our Savior, your Son, Jesus Christ. Amen. All right, Matthew 21, or 7, 21 through 23. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. On that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do many mighty works in your name? And I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. See, the binary in this text is the difference between true and false religion. And Jesus has determined to talk about true and false religion at this point in the Sermon on the Mount because it answers a question he asked implicitly further up in the Sermon on the Mount, in verse 14 of chapter 7. In verse 14, Jesus said, "...the gate is narrow and the way is hard that leads to life, and those who find it are few." And the question that should present for us is, why do so few find the way to life? Why do so few seek it out, and why do so few follow it? And Jesus provides three answers. The first two we have looked at uh, two weeks ago and last week, and then the third we're going to look at this week. So the first two answers, Jesus says, some uh, do not follow the way to life because it is hard and narrow, and there exists an easier and broader path. In other words, people look at the terrain of the path to destruction versus the terrain of the path to life, and they, not concerned with where the paths end, make the determination that the easier and broader path is the way for them. In other words, looking at the terrain of the path to life, they determine in the weakness of their heart that they will take the easier path, and it leads them astray. Last week, we looked at Jesus' second reason, which is that the way to life and destruction are often confused by false teachers. And Pastor Jim unpacks for us how false teachers, through their eloquence and charisma, can often blur or obfuscate the differences between them such that we cannot tell which one is the path to destruction and which one is the path to life. And sometimes this happens not primarily because of their eloquence or charisma, but because there's something inside of us which longs to have our ears itched, as Paul would say in First Timothy. And what that means is that there are false teachers who rather than get winning us over charisma and eloquence, win us because we approach them with an implicit bias toward a particular way the world is supposed to be. In our wisdom, we look at the world, we look at culture, and we say, it should be like this and not like that. And somebody comes along and they say, I agree. And they tell us something that we already believe is true. We have a predisposition or a bias to believe it. And then little by little, they turn us away from the path to life. And here's the third reason so few find the path to life. Because the way of destruction can often mimic or ape, the superficialities of the way to life. Like I said, we've considered the first two already, so this morning we'll be considering that third one. And in looking at those superficialities, what people often confuse uh, true religion with, we will then at the end contrast it with the two-sided but single coin of what Jesus tells us is the heart of true religion. And I should say, as we get started, that when I, speak about the, uh, when I speak about religion, true and false religion, when I think about true religion, you have to put it in the context of the Sermon on the Mount, which we have said from the very beginning that the Sermon on the Mount is fundamentally about our flourishing. That Jesus is telling, like I said at the beginning, the way to live which is true, which is good, and which is beautiful. And so we can classify then the two superficialities of false religion in the context of flourishing. So let me say it this way. There is no flourishing in mere verbal profession. There is no flourishing in mere verbal profession. Matthew 7:21. Not everyone who says to me, lord, lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my father who is in heaven. Here Jesus says that there will be some who come to him on the day of judgment and they will say, Lord, Lord, they will rightly attest to his identity, to his his rulership, his lordship, his kingship over them. And yet Jesus will say, you did not do the will of my Father. You did not pursue what my Father wanted you to pursue. And so he will send them away. And this teaching isn't unique to Christ. In fact, it's embedded throughout all of Scripture from the fall in Genesis 3 on forward. Just think about it. Anyone who reads the Old Testament with a careful eye will see that constantly throughout in the nation of Israel, there are people who have the cultural and national superficialities of following Yahweh, and yet their hearts are far from him. In fact, that group grows so large that for a big chunk of the Old Testament, the group that is actually faithful to what God is, what God says, and what God calls us to, are referred to as a small remnant of people. And so throughout the Old Testament, we see even within a community of faith, there are those who have the superficialities but do not follow, and those who are faithful. And this ought not be surprising for those of us who have read the New Testament and know that within the twelve disciples there was in fact a disciple who was not following Jesus. He was there with them. He ate with them. He slept next to them. He walked with Christ day after day, and yet Judas Iscariot was not truly a disciple of Christ. Similarly, Paul, in 2 Timothy 4.10, tells us about Demas, who is one of his his co-workers in missions work, his co-workers in the gospel, and yet in 2 Timothy 4.10, he says, For Demas, in love with the present world, has has deserted me and gone to Thessalonica. In love with the present world, a man with Paul, pursuing missions with Paul, eventually as Jesus describes in Mark chapter 4, the cares and the concerns of the world crush, choke, remove the heart of discipleship. And so he leaves Paul to pursue the things of the world. Concern for the will of God is choked out. And as such, we know that a mere profession, verbal profession, that we believe Jesus is Lord, is not enough for true religion and is therefore not enough for true flourishing. This is because our words reveal less about the commitments of our heart than our actions do. Words are easy. Actions and manner of life are hard. And they reveal our willingness to pay the cost of following Jesus. And I want to be careful here. I don't want to, want to make it sound like God's commands exist simply to prove our obedience. Like they're just some kind of test. That's not true. God's commands do test us. God's commands do prove our obedience. But fundamentally, God's commands exist because they come from him. They exist because they are his articulation of his character and how we, as his image bearers, are meant to embody and live out his character in the world. And so, rather then existing as a test, they exist so that we can flourish, that we can live how we were always intended to be. But if we stand before Jesus and we say that Jesus is Lord, that he is the Lord of our lives, and yet our lives reflect nothing of obedience to God, he will send us away because we have not rightly followed him. Our words are meaningless if they are not backed up by our actions, and in fact, if we declare Jesus as Lord, but we live however we want, what we are really saying with all of our lives is that we think we are Lord. That we think we are King. That we think we are God. And let me tell you this, and we'll talk a bit more about it at the end of the sermon. Let me tell you this. You and I are terrible gods. You and I lack omniscience. We don't know everything. You and I are not as gracious as God. It's not as loving as God. It's not as powerful as God. We are bad lords to follow. And so our profession needs to match our lives. You will not flourish if you are your own lord. And if, if there is no flourishing in mere verbal profession, similarly, there is no flourishing in the mere production of spectacle. Jesus says in Matthew 7, through 23, On that day many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do many mighty works in your name? And Jesus says, Then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. This has to be one of the most startling texts in all of Scripture to your average American Christian because we are so given over to spectacle. By which, by the way, spectacle I just mean uh, it's an attention-getting, flashy event. Uh, It's something that uh, catches our eye. And we are so given to this that we celebrate our nation's birth by launching colorful bombs up into the sky. That our entire 24-hour news cycle is driven by visual imagery and that there is a literally a billion-dollar industry that exists simply to ask this question, how can I monetize Americans' attention? And in that industry, which is advertising, for those of you who haven't gotten it yet, in the advertising industry, what they have determined is if you build a bigger and bigger and bigger spectacle, you can monetize each of our attention. I mean, we're coming up on the great holiday of advertising in just a couple of months, the Super Bowl, right? In the course of the, do you realize a 30-second commercial for the Super Bowl will cost you $6.5 million? That is just the 30 seconds of airtime. That doesn't count writing the commercial, producing the commercial, hiring an obnoxious but well-known actor to star in the commercial. $6.5 million for 30 seconds an entire industry built around trying to monetize spectacle. And Jesus here challenges our internal belief that spectacle and truth are connected. That the more flashy I can make something, the more truth I am revealing. Jesus challenges the connection we often make between spectacle and true religion. And we might be tempted to ask, though, looking at this passage, how can these things be done apart from the power of God? How can you prophesy apart from the power of God? How can you uh, perform mighty works apart from the power of God? How can you cast out demons apart from the power of God? Now, I have some thoughts on that, but rather than doing a theology of spiritual gifts right here, I think it's best to point out one thing from the context of the text and one thing from the text itself contextually, right before Jesus talks about this, he talks about false teachers and false prophets. Meaning, Jesus has actually already addressed a portion of our question in the text right before it. Jesus said, there will be false prophets and false teachers. There will be people of great eloquence, intelligence, charisma. But they will do that apart from me. And then in the text itself, the thing we should notice is that when these people come, And they say, here's what I have done, and I have done it in your name. Jesus doesn't say, no, you didn't, you liar. Oh, that mighty work was just sleight of hand. No, what he says is, I never knew you. And then he calls them workers of lawlessness. They are touting mighty works, and yet he says, those works, they were not done in service of my Father's will. And so they were violations of the law. He doesn't deny that they did the works themselves. And so given that idea from the text and the context, I think we should just take Jesus at his word and say, apparently there is some capability to do mighty things apart from the power of God. Which is why probably Paul tells us later in the New Testament to test all spirits, that we not be deceived by power. And if it is true that then the attention-getting spectacles of power, be they eloquence, charisma, miracles, or to put it more into today's terms the purchasing of high production value, if it's true that those things are disconnected from true religion, they are no sign from true religion, then we need to be careful about what catches our eye. Paul in 1 Corinthians 13, 1-3 says this, I can speak in the tongue of men and angels, but if I have not love, I am a noisy gong and a clanging cymbal. If I have prophetic powers and I understand all mysteries and all knowledge and, if I, and have all faith so as to remove mountains, but I have not love, I am nothing. If I give away all I have and deliver my body up to be burned, but have not love, I gain nothing. Paul does not denounce tongues, powers, knowledge, miracles, martyrdom self-sacrifice, but what he says is each one of those is a distant, distant, distant second to Christian love. And that Christian love, which has two directions, Christian love is what orients us towards God and his kingdom. Christian love, contextually in 1 Corinthians, is both love for God and love for others, following Jesus and the great commandment. So if there is no flourishing in the superficialities of mere verbal assent and mere spectacle, where does God direct us to find true flourishing? What does God say, this is true religion? What does he put before us in the Sermon on the Mount? Well, Jesus says true flourishing is found in a path of relational obedience. Think about the two responses Jesus gives. You have not obeyed the will of my Father, and I never knew you. These two things go hand in hand in the scriptures such that we can say they are two sides of the same coin. And yet our culture generally drives them apart. We don't think relationships, true and deep and meaningful relationships, are premised upon obedience. We think they're premised upon freedom. But here Jesus weds the two together. And in fact, this runs throughout all of Scripture that you can constantly see relationship with God right next to obedience to God. But let me point you to one place, and we've already seen it read, where you see these truths stacked on top of one another in such intensity and frequency that is undeniable. So look at John uh, 14 and 15. Jesus, as we have already heard read uh, from Daniel, Jesus in 14.6 gives us a totalizing claim about himself. Jesus said to them, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Totalizing claim. You want to see the Father? Me. I am the only path. There is nothing else. I am the way. I am the truth. I am the life. And then he tells them what it means to live in light of belief of that. And he says this, John 14.12, Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever believes in me will also do the works that I do. Connection between belief and works right there. John 14, 15. If you love me, you will keep my commandments. John 14, 21. Whoever has my commandments and keeps them, he it is who loves me. And he who loves me will be loved by my Father, and I will love him and manifest myself to him. John 14, 23 and 24. Jesus answered them, If anyone loves me, he will keep my word, and my Father will love him. And he will come to me and, and make our home, we will come to him and make our home with him. And whoever does not love me does not keep my words. And the word that you hear is not mine, but the Father's who sent me. And then John fifteen eight through 14, we didn't hear this read earlier. By this my Father is glorified, that you bear much fruit, and so prove to be my disciples. And you are my friends if you do what I command you. To have a relationship with Jesus then, which is to say to, to love Jesus, Jesus in John 14 and 15, which by the way, he says in his last evening with the disciples prior to his crucifixion. It's his last opportunity to teach them what it means to follow him before he will be nailed to a Roman cross. And here, Jesus says, to obey my commands is to love me. And he puts them together so frequently that it is undeniable. There is no such thing as loving and following Jesus without obeying him. This is why the sociologist and theologian Oz Guinness, who wrote a fascinating and fantastic book on calling, says this, Calling by its very nature reminds us that we are only followers of Christ when in fact we follow Christ. In other words, when we leave all other allegiances and walk after him, doing what he says and living as he requires, Jesus himself puts the point bluntly to those whose deeds do not match their words. Why do you call me Lord, Lord, and you do not do what I say? I'm going to skip a line. He says, the point is overlooked. The way is for traveling. Either we progress having, however, slowly and unsurely, and take Take comfort in that. We progress, maybe slowly and unsurely, but we progress. So however, slowly and unsurely, or we are not on the way. Anything that is purely theoretical, anything that is only good intentions, anything merely static and settled, let alone exclusive, high-bound, and hypocritical, is out of the question for those for whom one person, Jesus, is everything. And all that matters is progress, pilgrim's progress toward him and in his steps. We have to be careful how we read this. You know, the ancient word following only changed fairly recently. You know, now you can follow people on Instagram or YouTube pages or podcasts who you have never met. But previously, from the time of Jesus until just a couple of decades ago, to follow someone was irreducibly relational. It meant that you had to know them and have a certain kind of faith in them, that you had to be able to see into their eyes, that you had to be able to walk in their steps. We must not miss that following Jesus... Means following him relationally. In fact, the theological term that I would put in place of relational obedience is this covenantal discipleship. You can pick whichever term you like better, but one of the benefits of using the term covenant is it grounds us both in the need of obedience and in relational grace. A covenant was an ancient system by which people established a relationship. To this day, we still refer to marriages as covenant ceremonies because they establish a deep and meaningful relational bond. And if we understand the offer of obedience to be one that exists in the covenantal framework, then we acknowledge the relational aspect of flourishing the way God made us. You know, I worry that talking about obedience might steer us into a version or a view of the Christian life that sounds like bootstrapping. You just pull yourself up by your bootstraps. You don't feel like you're doing well enough? Just try harder. Obey better. But classifying it in the terms of covenant requires us to recognize the grace involved in our obedience. Biblically speaking, all covenants are established by God's initiative. They are maintained by God's grace, and they reach their end only because of his, not our, effort. And so when we think in terms of covenant obedience, when we think in terms of covenant discipleship, and we could run and look at Abraham, we could look at Noah, we could look at Moses, we could look at David, we could see it in every covenant in the Bible, but we don't have time. But if we looked there, we would always see that it is God who starts and initiates the covenant. It is God who sustains and maintains the covenant. And when the covenant finally reaches its end, it's only because of God and not the humans involved. And that that is also true of the new covenant cut in the very flesh and blood of Jesus Christ. So this covenantal framework returns the necessary tension to scripture of our obedience and yet a loving relational bond. And I think this is difficult for us to grasp because of the culture we live in. Which is why I love this passage, just two verses in the book of Galatians. In Galatians four, eight and nine, Paul does this really strange thing that might challenge some of us in how we view Scripture. So Paul says in Galatians four, eight, Formerly when I did not know God when you did not know God, you were enslaved by nature by that by nature which is not God. So Paul compares, he's talking to the Galatians who are struggling with works righteousness, and he says, your works righteousness in pursuit of God is just the same as the idolatry where you once worshipped images and idols of false gods. And then he says this, but now that you have come to know God, and then I imagine, if you imagine Paul writing this as you would write it, I do this all the time when I'm writing a handwritten note to somebody, I write something and then I think about it. And I go back and I take that period that I put at the end of the sentence and I just put a little at the end of it and turn it into a comma because I thought of something equally if not more important to add to that sentence. And this is what Paul does. But now if you have come to know God, pause, think, reflect, period to a comma, or rather, to be known by God. How can you then turn back to the weak and worthless elementary principles of the world, whose slaves you want to be once more? Paul there says it's important for us to know God, but maybe there's something more important than us knowing God. Maybe that thing, because it comes logically prior to us knowing God, is that God first knew us. Tim Keller, writing about this passage, says. What makes a person a Christian is not so much your knowing God, but his knowing you. To be known in biblical terms is more than an intellectual awareness. To know someone is to enter into a personal relationship with him or her. So then Paul says, it's not so much your regard and love for God, but rather his regard and love for you. That really makes you a Christian. That is, he has set his love on us in Jesus Our knowing of God will rise and fall depending on many things. But God's knowing of us is absolutely fixed and solid. The great and central basis of the Christian assurance, Keller continues, is not how much our hearts are set on God, but how unshakably his heart is set on us. And if we begin to grasp that we are known by God, We won't seek to bolster our self-image or standing before him through works. We won't worship any idol. We will love him, the one who knows us. To put Keller's words back into scripture, we love because he first loved us. We know God because he first knew us. We are in covenant with God because he set his covenantal love on us. True flourishing is covenantal discipleship or relational obedience, whichever term you prefer. We might ask, why is that flourishing? I imagine a question like that might come from some of you have had bad uh, religious experiences. We talked about false teachers last week. And so you might think in terms of I was a part of a religious movement, I was a part of something, I was a part of a community that I thought was directing me towards God. And in the end, it was merely disappointment at best or abuse at worst. And so when somebody stands up on stage and they talk to you about obedience, maybe that, you know, puts a blip on your radar and you start to wonder, you start to question, you start to doubt. And it's that very reason which, by the way, I understand. And I would guarantee you, having over the past year heard many of the stories in this room, that if you're thinking that, you should know many people in this room also understand. This church, in large part, is comprised of people who have come out of bad church experiences, false religious experiences, abusive religious experiences. And now we stand here, and the reason why I have sought to saturate this message in Scripture is to say, it is not I standing before you telling you to obey. It is the word of God which says, this is the path to true flourishing. And this is the path to true flourishing because in it you exist and you live the way the Logos, the Word of God that created and formed the entire universe from nothing, you live in the way he intended you to live. And when you obey God's commands, do you realize that in Genesis 1, we are told that each one of us is crafted in the image of God. And so in that image God says obey my commands and you will live how I designed you. That is why it is flourishing. Rather than this though we in our culture often reject obeying Christ and obeying God's commands and we make ourselves gods in one of two ways. Often we can make ourselves God by seeking and pursuing comfort at the cost of all things. Or we can make ourselves gods by seeking and pursuing what we might call hustling at the cost of all things. We can either say, comfort is true flourishing and the good life. I should pursue all things through comfort. And so relationships can become initiated or dissolved based on whether or not they make me comfortable. Jobs are meaningful and satisfying or not meaningful and dissatisfying on the basis of whether or not they make me comfortable or provide the means for me to purchase my comfort. Likewise, the same side of that coin, if I hustle, then I will find true flourishing in the good life because the good life is fundamentally found in self-achievement. And so whatever lies before me, whether it's the life of my mind, I will read enough books. Whether it's the life of my body, I will lift enough weights and run enough miles. Whether it's my job, I will work harder than anybody else at my office. Whether it's my social goals, well, I will have the most enviable Christmas card and family Whatever it is, we act as if, in the hustle ideology, that we are the upholders, creators, and sustainers of the whole cosmos. And you can tell that simply by writing down all the things that you should do and seeing if you've got 24 hours in a day to do them all. Often, by the way, just to put my own cards on the table, if you looked at my calendar, you would assume that I think I'm omnipresent. Because I have so many meetings stacked one on top of the other that you think either you're getting a police escort everywhere you're going or you think you can just be all places at all times. Each of these ideologies presents us with a version of flourishing via freedom. That we make ourselves gods, and as God we ought to be free of all things. But we must realize that when we make ourselves lords, we are bad lords both for ourselves and for those around us. Because here's the general rule of worship. The only thing that can sustain and satisfy your worship is something that exists for it. Something which is big enough to hold it. Where we get our word worship is from the Greek word, which means glory, which means weight. That worship is actually a weight that we put on something. And I will tell you this, not a single one of us in here nor any human being you find out in the world has big enough and broad enough shoulders to hold the weight of your worship and especially not you. And so when we worship ourselves or when we worship others, we put a weight on them and the only two options are either that weight will crush them or they will cast that weight off and it will land right on us. We... Are bad lords because we neither possess the grace nor the power to deserve worship and to honor it. I'm especially aware of this as a pastor because Jesus criticized the religious leaders of his day by saying in Matthew 23:4, they tie up heavy burdens hard to bear and they lay them on people's shoulders. But they themselves are not willing to move them with their finger. Here's why I wanted to present covenantal discipleship, rel- relational obedience as the path to flourishing, Because there is only one Lord who will tell you this. Matthew 11:27 through27 through30. "All things have been handed over to me," Jesus says, by my Father. No one knows the Son except the Father, and no one knows the Father except the Son, and anyone to whom the Son chooses to reveal him. So, come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you, and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy, and my burden is light. True flourishing is found in the path of relational obedience, because obedience to Christ is a pursuit of the Father's will, what we were designed to fulfill. So, for those of you who seek to follow Christ, remember this, when obedience feels hard, the will of God is a lighter yoke and an easier burden than any you will place upon your own shoulders. Would you pray with me, friends? Father in heaven, we thank you for your word. We know that it requires us to acknowledge that there is, in fact, a burden and a yoke. There is, in fact, obedience which is required. But that obedience, that yoke, that burden, designed by you for us, fits us the way you intended us to be. And so we are most ourselves when we are in closest step and closest obedience to you. May we know that this week and next, especially as we... As we think about the incarnation, for if you merely stay a baby in our minds, we will never submit to you as king. And so, Lord, may we hold tightly to the miracle of the incarnation and just as tightly to the miracle of your life, death, and resurrection for the manner and structure of our lives. We pray these things in your precious and holy name, King Jesus. Amen. Thank you for listening to Journey Church Tucson Sermon Podcast. We'd love to have you join us in person on Sunday mornings at 10 a.m. You can find out more about us at journeyefc.org.